0: Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, Amen. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. So Psalm 119 at 176 verses is by far the longest chapter in the Bible. The psalm is so long that our prayer book splits it up into five different services over the course of three days when we're reading it in the course of the daily offices. I don't think I've ever chanted all of Psalm 119 in one setting because it's it's that long. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem with 22 stanzas. Each stanza represents one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? So the first stanza is Aleph, the second stanza is bait, etc., etc. And we have several of those kinds of poems in the, in the Psalter. But Psalm 119 goes the extra mile by giving eight verses per stanza. Each verse in the stanza starts with that same letter. All, the verse, all eight verses of stanza one begin with Aleph. And then verses um, nine through 16 all begin with bait, et cetera, et cetera. All that is to say, this is a very, very well-organized poem indeed. The psalmist does not go into free verse. He is not a 1960s beat poet. (laughs) It may be no surprise that um, given that kind of organization, the, the psalm would take something like the law of God, something also very organized as its subject. What might be a surprise, though, is that it is uh, primarily about the love of the law. Consider, for example, verse 97. In our prayer book, it reads, Lord, what love have I unto thy law? All the day long is my study in it. Or the more famous King James rendering, Oh, how love I thy law. So that's right. The longest chapter in the Bible is a love song about the law. As Christians, we don't typically think of the law in such uh, emotional and you know, positive emotional terms. We typically think of the law more as that which brings a curse, that which is something from which we've been redeemed. Or alternatively, we might think of the law as um, that harsh but perfect standard which we must scrupulously keep if we're going to make God happy. And there is a certain amount of truth, to both of these views biblically, but it's not a complete truth. If we stop there, we're going to miss the true beauty of the law as it relates to our lives in Christ as New Covenant believers. Article number 7 of the 39 Articles of Religion, which you can find on page 604 in your prayer book, 604, article number 7, It nicely sums up how we as Anglicans approach the Old Testament in general and the law of God in particular. This is what it it says. The Old Testament is not contrary to the new. For both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard, which feign that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. Although the law given from God by Moses, as touching ceremonies and rites, do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth, yet notwithstanding, no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. So this gives us two very important ways we approach the law. It tells us two very important things about Christians and the law. First, we're to approach the law of God in a Christological manner. That is, the law points us to Christ. And what we read in that very first part of the the article, it reminds us that the law has always... to Christ. Theologians have often put it this way they say that the old covenant saints looked forward to Christ and to the cross and the new covenant saints including you and I in our aspiration to sainthood look backward to Christ. It has always been about Christ even before his incarnation even when the folks didn't yet have a full picture of him. That's why at the beginning of our gospel passage today, our Lord says, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. That's Luke 10.23 on page 208 in your prayer book. So it's not that the Old Testament fathers lacked the gospel, but they did lack its full revelation, right? Right? Now, the second thing that we, that we see from the article is that we recognize that among the often arcane ceremonial and civil laws, those very kind of odd things to our eyes, we also find those moral laws in the Old Testament that teach us our Christian duty. This is why the prayer book tradition is to recite either the Ten Commandments like we did today or the summary of the law like we we typically do um, at the beginning of communion. And in fact, we had the summary of the law, if you were paying attention, in our gospel reading today as well. Because we need to be reminded of our Christian duty to love God and to love our neighbor both in heart and in deed. And so we get the law of God every week. We can see both of these approaches to the law playing out in our epistle reading today from uh, Galatians 3.16. You can find that on page 207 in your prayer book, Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the Galatians had fallen into the error or heresy that we often call Judaizing, which means that they wanted to add obedience to the law of Moses, which included, in their case, the ceremonial and civil precepts to the gospel. Now, we're not, we're not entirely sure that what they were saying is, in order to be saved, you must have the grace of the cross and the law. If you're not obedient as well as the grace, then you're not, going to, you're not saved, that kind of thing. Or whether they were saving, saying, okay, now that you've been saved by grace, you're going to be kept by the law. And if you stop keeping the law, you're going to fall out of grace and end up going to hell. They might have, we're not sure which one they're saying. But we do know they were saying they were mixing it all up together, and that St. Paul says that they had abandoned a key element of the faith. Read the beginning of chapter 3, and he gets very, very emotional about the issue. To make his argument, St. Paul then goes back to Abraham, back to a covenant that predated the law of Moses, to show how God's promises had always been just that they'd been promises. So in Genesis chapters 12 and 15, which are where we really get this covenant with Abraham, chapter 12 is kind of the beginnings of the covenant, that call of Abraham. And then in 15, God really lays out some of the details. In those chapters, the text is pretty clear that on a literal level, part of God's promise to Abraham is that he would have many descendants. He would have seed in a plural sense, right? As the children's song says, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. But St. Paul here is making an allegorical or a typological point in Galatians 3. All of God's covenant promises reach their fulfillment in Christ. And in fact, it's only because of Christ that the song can go on to say I am one of them, and so are you, so let's go praise the Lord. As important as the physical descendants in Israel and as the spiritual descendants in you and I are to that promise, the coming of the Messiah would be the basis for the promise's true fulfillment. Those descendants don't mean anything without the Messiah coming. Without that promised Messiah. And we can't be um, sons of Abraham as Gentiles without the Messiah, right? As it said in Genesis 12, 3, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So when we look at Genesis 15, it's very clear that the basis of Abraham being counted as righteousness, as the text says, was his belief in the Lord and his promises. In other words, the basis of Abraham's righteousness is not perfect obedience to the law, but rather it's faith or trust in God. His obedience to God, an obedience that in fact predates the law of Moses, as St. Paul said, is the result of his belief or his faith in God. That's why St. James says that Abraham was justified by his works. If it, it, He's saying that... Um, The works, Abraham's good deeds, his obedience to God was the proof or the justification of his faith. If there were no obedience to God, and we see this obedience dramatically illustrated in the Binding of Isaac, um, which is another one of those Abraham stories that is just filled with Christ imagery. Um, If it weren't for obedience to God, if there was no obedience, Abraham would have been proved to not have any faith. This trust in God's promise of seed by which all the nations would be blessed points to the everlasting life then that we have in Christ. That's what St. Paul is saying. It's a promise that is freely given by the Lord God, not something that we can earn by the law. Yet when we have that everlasting life, we're empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit to fight manfully under Christ's banner, as we read in our baptismal liturgy, against sin the world and the devil. The burden of the law is then relieved and obedience becomes an act of love even when it's a costly or difficult act. It still becomes an act of love. So then, does this show this difficulty, this burden of the law, does that show that the law is defective? Well, absolutely not. Rather, it shows the perfection of God's law So let's pick up in our epistle with verse 19. Galatians 3:19. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture had concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the point of the law was never to be salvific. It was not to save. there was not in the old covenant, you get saved by obedience in the new covenant, you get saved by grace. That's not the way it works. It was always by God's grace. Instead, what we see in Scripture is that we have three uses of the law. First, the law restrains wickedness. We're going to be less wicked when we see what's bad and how there's punishments for it, right? Second of all, the law sends us to Christ. And then third of all, the law shows us how we're supposed to live as God's people. And it's the second of these three uses that St. Paul is referring to in our epistle. Because of its perfection, the law shows us that we need mercy. It shows us that we can't have life without God's intervention. It shows that we're not righteous by ourselves. St. Paul Paul goes on later in the chapter to call the law a schoolmaster that sends us to Christ. Um, The the Greek is a pedagogue. It's, It's a tutor sending us to Christ. The law shows us how sinful sin really is. Later on in the service, we're going to quote St. Paul in the comfortable words where St. Paul said, This is a true saying and worthy to be received that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. If you go on in the passage, he he says something more in that verse. St. Paul continues on and says, Of whom I'm the foremost. St. Paul says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all. Because of the law, St. Paul realized that he was the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. But nevertheless, Christ came to save sinners, and that's the promise of God. And by the way, if St. Paul gets to be the chief of sinners, I guess that means that we can uh, be in competition for the second worst sinners. (laughs) So then the question comes up, how can the psalmist say that he loves God's law? Well, by showing us our sin, the law sends us to the cross for mercy. That's a beautiful thing. Rather than being turned away from the cross, rather than being turned away from God's throne because of our sins, which is what our sins deserve, God accepts us as his beloved children on account of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that it's not the keeping of the law that makes God happy with us. Rather, he's already happy with us because we are in Christ, because we belong to Jesus. We're his. So then what about our Christian duty to keep the moral law? If if, if God's happy with us, if we've got that grace, doesn't that give us a license to sin? Why should we even do our duty? Why keep the law if God's already pleased with us? Well, we do so out of love for God. We do so because it is our duty, and as Christians, we want to do the right thing, especially when it relates to God. We do so because the moral law shows us what God is really like, as evidenced by God the Son keeping the law perfectly. The law's not random, it's not God flips a coin to see what's good and bad, but rather the law tells us about his character. Thou shalt not bear false witness because God is truth and God is truthful, right? For example. So we obey in order to follow and to imitate our Lord Jesus. Because when we're freed from the law's condemnation, we're free to live the law and to love it just as our Lord Jesus did. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.